Podcast One. Would you dare to close your business at the height of its success when it was all but printing money? Not sell it for a big payday, simply just close the doors. Well, Chelsea Thomas did just that, and she's about to share how she built her empire and what led to its closing. It's a very honest and a little teary episode 515 of the 11 year old award winning small business big marketing podcast. And welcome back to your weekly dose of transparent marketing. I'm your host. Timbo Reed, you, infinitely more importantly, are a motivated business owner who is ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. I wish nothing more for you. Big episode today. We catch up with leading social influencer and founder of iHeart Bargains, Chelsea Thomas, who recently closed her burgeoning online empire at the height of its success. This week's motivated listener explains how she was inspired to make her brand more consistent, thanks to something she heard on this podcast, and I let you in on next week's 17-year-old guest. As per usual, team, there is marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ, so let's get stuck right in. So Chelsea Thomas is the founder of iHeart Bargains, which is Australia's largest online hub for fashion and homewares under $100. In fact, for the last eight years, every day she's been providing more than 150,000 women with unique social media and digital content. Basically, she finds bargains, like say an $80 doona cover at Kmart, posts it on Instagram, Kmart sells out, Chelsea makes money. That's the business. Sounds good, doesn't it? She's also worked with some of Australia's leading brands to host and produce video and photographic content, making her a leader in brand collaboration, a concept that we do talk about during the interview. Now, things were going beautifully for Chelsea until one day a few months ago, she had a breakdown. The business was growing at a rate of knots. She felt disconnected from her family and she was totally exhausted. And at that point, she posted a 15-minute video announcing she was closing the business. It's now time for me to really protect myself creatively, be with my family. Uh, Jude definitely needs me. He's, he's now eight, but he has seen a mother that has worked so hard for so long, for nearly a decade. I've, I've just smashed it. I've, I've smashed it and I've thought that smashing it hmm. was the right. Now I warn you up front, my chat with Chelsea is brutally honest and raw, covering everything from her breakdown to how she built an amazing business. So if you're feeling a little vulnerable, either maybe listen to another episode, there's 514 others, chat with a friend or if you're feeling really ordinary, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Here's me asking Chelsea how bad things really got. Now, let's start at the end, Chelsea. In your 15-minute video where you announced closing the business, you appeared 
totally exhausted, clearly emotional. You talk about how the business got in the way of raising your two beautiful kids, the relationship with your hubby was affected, and how you had to seek psychological and healing support as a result of building something that was absolutely amazing. How bad did things get? Uh, well, I think that video, thanks for watching, um, that tearful, tearful effort of mine, that was when I was, yeah, probably at my lowest, but also I wanted to be as authentic as possible. Uh, and I decided to, you know, wear no makeup and, you know, show it all. So how bad did it get? I think uh, to midway through last year, that's 2019, I just crashed. I think after eight years of being on, you know, online, on with trying to be a really good mum, on with trying to, you know, we do so much as, you know, as, as men, but as women, um, the load, the invisible load. And with work the way it was, I was, you know, six days a week. I didn't really feel like I was getting any sort of respite in my week or my days. And it's kind of like, you know, when you're in a a small biz, it's that snowball effect of when is this ending? It's actually not. And and you kind of say to yourself things like, I'll just get through that event and I'll feel better. I'll just get through that campaign and and, and something will will lift. And it doesn't. Uh, and, And I did that for years. So, I think with the the amount of adrenaline in my system and the, the cortisol levels were up and I was all I was not sleeping very well, uh, it gets to the point where your body will give at some point. And I'm I'm young and I was starting to feel the effects of um, just really exhaustion um, at a, at a level where I had to seek help. Uh, it, and it was psychological help. It was going to my GP and saying I'm literally falling asleep in the middle of the day what was going on. Like I could I could take the kids to school meant to be at a job at 12 and at 10.30 I'm trying to sneak a nap in. That's not normal. That's that's not, um, except I kind of in my own heart of hearts thought it was and I thought it's what I had to do in order to be successful and productive. Uh, but uh, over time that obviously wears on your body and, yeah, everything kind of went went downhill from that point. It's Someone asked me the other day and I said it's like when you go on a holiday and you get sick, you know, for people that are you know, highly functioning all the time and really pushing themselves and their bodies and their brains. That's what happens when we rest. So I kind of pulled the accelerator off a little bit and I felt like everything started to tumble and that had to kind of happen. Just reflecting back, Chelsea, and sorry to mm. take you back there, but you've been very open. No, you can take me back. That's fine. Awesome. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, and I know that my listeners will too because, hey, business is not all rosy, you know, and they and, and particularly social influencer type businesses. People look and go, oh, look at those guys, you know, on the yacht, you know, down the beach. It's <laughs> like it, it can be bloody hard. Um, so yeah. in, in that really, in those dark moments midway through last year, what was driving you? Was it money? Was it ego? Was it, oh, I want my kids? I don't, whatever, what was it? What kept you going? Yeah. Uh, look, at, at that stage, the business was flying. It was, isn't it amazing where your business is flying and you're crumbling? There's that whole, you know, everyone coming and patting you on the back and the accolades and the praise that you love. Uh, and in actual fact, you're falling apart. The business looks great, but you don't. Uh, and you keep putting this, you know, this mask on every day and saying, it's okay, it's okay. So for me, I think the sort of the turning point for me was not being able to function in my day and also realising that my key relationships at home started to kind of break down. I could have worked like that probably for a couple more years without 
seeking help, but I probably wouldn't have been in, in the best way. And the business probably would have started to take a hit, I think. With the benefit of hindsight, was it really worth it? That's such a hard question. I've always talked about my regrets very openly. And, you know, people say, don't have regrets. I do. I do have regrets because I have an eight and a six-year-old that actually uh, I, I wasn't present for, for a very large period of their childhoods. And lots of milestones were missed because I said to myself, I'm going to have a nanny. I'm going to make the money to pay for the nanny. I agreed with that with my husband. That was really important to me that I was actually, it was worth my work. And I lost a lot of really big moments. I really did. And now I'm getting them back. Obviously my kids aren't teenagers. You know, they say children's values are set by the time they're eight. That freaks me out because I have an eight-year-old son that I feel like I've been absent. I had a very supportive, or still do, have a very supportive husband that kind of didn't put any boundaries on on what I was able to do. And it meant that I could be very successful, but at the same time, it meant that the, the home was really not in a, in a good way. I was highly anxious. There was a lot of yelling. It was kind of my way or the highway, you know, move out of my way so I can do my work. And I think a lot of workaholics, and I'm the first to put up my hand and say, I'm not into drugs. I'm not into, you know, drug sex and rock and roll. My thing was work. And I, I think a lot of small businesses find themselves in this headspace of not being able to stop. And, and that's where I was for years and years and years. And I think the best thing that I was ever asked, and this is where the, I try and think, especially for your audience, what are the trigger points that actually start you on the healing or start you actually enjoying what you're doing? And I worked with a coach that said to me, um, why? They just asked me why. They said, they started with my purpose and they said, Chelsea, what is your purpose? And I answer them and they said, okay, why is that your purpose? And I sat in a chair for about 45 minutes and they asked me why again, again, again. What ends up happening is you get to the core, the real core, the emotional level core about why you're doing what you're doing and potentially why you're running so hard. Because the pace that I was running at I would say that I wasn't as productive as I could have been. I thought I was, but that, you know, running on that anxiety and and that adrenaline, you often see people and you think, wow, I just had 15 conversations with you in in the space of 60 seconds. You're not really here, are you? You're, you know, you're very much in your head, not in your body. So that was a trigger for me being asked why. And that's a very simple, very cheap and very accessible way to get to the core of why you're running. Why are you running so hard? And what are you running away from? What are you trying to escape there? And I mean, that's this is not a, a health and wellness podcast by any means. But, well, I, it, it's not, but I am very interested in business owners wellbeing because without it, you're not going to grow a great business. You're not going to do great marketing. So by all means, go there. No. Yeah, it's a, it's a struggle to get to the point where I, I don't really believe in balance. I just believe in in moments of your day, even if it's 10 minutes, even if it's 30 minutes of your day that come back to you. And what I mean is dropping down, whether it's sitting on the ground or sitting in a chair or just grounding yourself and saying, am I okay? Am I happy? Is this okay? Are we all doing all right this week? And I didn't have those moments. Those moments frightened me because I knew what the answer was going to be. So I really avoided stillness. And I think Instagram, um, which we haven't talked about what the business was, but Instagram, we'll, we'll get to that. Instagram being the platform, what that did to me was just drive all the things that were not very good for me up. 
so the cortisol levels and the um you know the demand feeding that beast all the time I was familiar and comfortable in that space, but I just didn't realise what it was doing to my health at the time. Right now, and I imagine by the time this episode goes live, I may well be back on Facebook and Instagram, but I got hacked about two weeks ago and... Blessing in disguise? Total. I've been shut Mm. down. I've put in a request to say, hey, Facebook, it wasn't me posting that ISIS stuff. And they're going, well, we're not sure sure about that. And so you're never getting it back. My face, it's gone. And I'm like, it's not good for my podcast. And I have a tribe of listeners and all that, which I, I miss and I'd love to get back in there. But... Interesting. We will come to obviously going to be talking about the business and social media. I got the sense from that video that you did to announce the closure of the business. In fact, you might have been mentioned in the video that that was the most authentic that you'd ever been in a public forum. And I'm wondering what stopped you from being totally authentic in your business. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that the things that I did I never didn't believe in. I think everything that I did, I was really known for amongst brands for for doing real content and being real. And they'd say to me, we want to work with you because you're as, you're as real as it gets. I think what I wasn't showing, I was, I was showing an authentic side. I just wasn't showing the whole self because it wasn't, you know, my Instagram was based on something that was, it was consumer based and it was, it was fashion and retail and it was lifestyle. And what I found in the last sort of year and a half to two years was I actually had other things to say to this huge community of women that I could tell whenever I went a little bit over that line of, you know, I'd say something about my kids or I'd say something about something that's hard in my life, the response and engagement that I would get was far outweighed, you know, a pretty dress. And I think that the whole thing was that 15-minute video, and I always said I had it in my mind when I was going to finish that that it was going to be highly emotionally charged and I'd only shoot it once or twice, and I did that. But I think I was worried that people wouldn't like pretty and wouldn't like me not being confident and not, you know, it was a very vulnerable thing to do. And little did I know that it would just, you know, I had Fox News in the States call me and say, oh my gosh, we've never had a successful influencer quit. Why would you quit? You're at like top of your game. Um, So it actually took off and I liked that it did because there was a lot of influencers that came back to me and said, oh, thank you for saying what we feel every day. And I'm like, well, if we did that more, you know, like you said before, a lot of a lot of people watching and a lot of new mums watching, which was, you know, my hub or my audience, it would do a world of good for their for their well-being, you know, not to look at something and say, how is that achievable? So I'm all I'm all here for talking about, you know, looking at accounts that are real, that they're not authentic. And I think what started to happen now in socials is produced reality. So it looks like they're having a hard day or they're having it and they actually produce the fact that that's a hard moment and that's even worse. But that's becoming really popular now. You know, I'm having a really hard day. and But is that real? We don't know what's real now. So I think it's good for that I did that. I needed to do that. Let's go back in time to the start, Chelsea, uh, of iHeart Happier Brands. days. <laughs> Happier days. We'll come back to the dark <laughs> times. Don't worry. But it's going to be. So you say prior to starting iHeart Bargains, you were always in roles that required you to tell stories and create content. So what were you doing? And what did you love about that storytelling side of marketing that's become so 
avant-garde. It has a little. I started out straight out of uni. I knew that I wanted to do, um, or straight out of high school, which is very strange, isn't it, that you know what you want to do so early on. I loved the idea of public relations. I loved the idea of promoting um, a brand or a story or a personality. So very quickly I found myself sort of in that in, I, I was in in-house roles for lots of different companies. I never stayed in a role over 12 months, sort of that Gen Y, got bored, moved on, um, and always had the experience to be able to do the next job and then landed at Southern Cross or Stereo in a PR role there, which really opened my, I suppose, my eyes to producing a true story, a funny story, and I loved it. I do not regret those days. It was some of the best time. I was young. It was a very young team. Hamish and Andy were just coming into play. So it was a really exciting time for media and for radio and for new talent. So I I did a couple of different roles in radio, did some TV, which wasn't very kind to me, but it taught me resilience. And then... um, Why wasn't it kind? The personalities in television are, are just... I don't think they have to be, but they are just... Uh, highly demanding and not very friendly. My experience in TV, I really had to have a break off the back of that for a good couple of months. And I'm pretty tough. When I did my roles in organisations, I really enjoyed it. But Well, look at the news that's just come out about Ellen DeGeneres and her production crew. Wow. I mean, that's... The- I just, I don't want to believe that, Tim. No I one does. She, I'm such a fan of, I'm such a fan of hers. But, you know, I think we all, we all have our moments. It just so happens that um, a lot of the talent that I worked with, under huge amounts of pressure. There's a lot of competition. I mean, I saw it day in, day out. And maybe that brings out not the best in us. That's all I can say on that. I don't I don't think it's, you know, let's not overthink it, but I do, I think there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of pressure to be great every day. If you're sitting behind a mic, as you know, doing breakfast hours, you're always exhausted. I chatted to um, a talent recently that used to be on air on Fox FM and she said, it took her a good two years to not feel jet lagged after doing breakfast radio for 10 years. So you you decide to become a mum, you leave your full-time corporate job and it's at this point that all the planets align and the idea for I Heart Bargains comes mm. along. How did that come about and what did version one look like? So it came about via a very simple conversation with a new mum that I sat down with at Mother's Group. I treated Mother's Group, Tim, much like a job. I was, I always needed to know where we were going. I needed to know what we were eating, what time's the wine. They were like, it's 10.30, Chelsea, calm down. <laughs> um, no, but I I treated that really as a, as a social hub that I, I just looked forward to every week. I wasn't great at the stay-at-home mum thing, so... Uh, I used to kind of venture around the shops around Richmond in Melbourne there and find bargains. And I used to, as a kind of fun thing, I would show the mums every week what I found. And one of the mums said, hey, instead of showing us every week on your phone, do you think you could create a PDF and send it to us? And I said, that's kind of full on. And she said, well, why don't you just start a blog then? And it was like that moment of oh my gosh, the heavens have opened up and that is my calling. No, but I think what it did for me, it gave me an escape from, and I don't mean this in a negative way and I know mums listening will understand this, it just gave me a part of myself back. So I was 10 months looking after this very demanding baby who's now beautiful and eight, but he was hard work and I needed an out and that business 
I, I treated it like another baby and I sat up very late into the night and, and finding lots of bargains. And I did that for free, Tim. For two years, I just pounded the pavement with creating the content for this wonderful organic, really organically built website, um, which showed off the best buys for under $100. And that then grew very quickly. There was nothing kind of like it at the time. And then I started to work with brands from that point. And it was very fortunate that in my roles in radio, I'd learnt the skills of integration, which was obviously bringing a brand together with um, beautiful content. And that's what I I actually ate it for breakfast. I loved to do that. So the great unwashed integration, bringing brands together with beautiful content. Just given a most popular one of your most popular posts in that first couple of years, what did that look like? Oh, it's funny. I know which one it is straight away. So it was a pair of at the time, and I mean now you'd go what uh, a pair of glitter flat shoes that I just shot. I know they were gold glitter. They were really like flat shoes for mums that had a little bit of a difference. And I remember I I shot them and they were like $12 at Kmart. So the other thing was, you've got to remember, we're, we're rewinding nearly a decade ago. Kmart was not even on the Richter for people to go in and buy stuff. It was embarrassing and I didn't care. So there was this whole accessibility that I was allowing women. I was saying, go into Kmart. There's actually some really good stuff in there. And so this conversation would start and this shareability would start. And I remember um, Kmart got in touch with me and said there was that and there was a bedspread. And the two of them just went like wildfire and they said, oh, we're, they, they got in touch with me and they said, the marketing team, hey, we're watching you. I was like, oh, that's weird. And they said, no, 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 we're watching the sales. It's, it's, you're selling out. We're selling out. So I knew at that point that I had, it was more than a blog and it was more than just content. It was now to the point where I could marry the two. Um, and that's where I started to make money. And that was really exciting. Uh, making money through Kmart sponsoring you? Kmart wasn't the one to sponsor me first. It was actually Target. So Target was watching me too. And I obviously used the big brands. Wherever I could physically walk to, I'd walk to and gain content that way. It was very amateur hour at this point. And you've got to remember, this is before Instagram had video. Facebook was still really big and not doing pay for play. So this is, you know, we're going back, you know, eight years. The Um, the golden years. The golden years where your stuff actually got seen by your customers. And your friends saw it. This is a crazy concept. (laughs) They actually, I know, and nothing was, Mark Zuckerberg probably had an algorithm of some kind, but I tell you, it was working for the small business, not against. So, Look, that that was a really exciting time because I had, you know, friends and family and it started to really grow and get momentum and the mother's group pushed it out for me. But I really didn't have to do any proactivity towards marketing or publicity of my own. The idea just started to gain momentum and I had such belief and I I worked so hard at it that um, I was so passionate about it Uh, and it, it really took off. So, Target was my first client, which was fantastic because we were learning together. This was at a stage where brands weren't necessarily understanding the boundaries of what they should pay for and what they shouldn't. So because I had that background, I would say to them, well, I'm not going to guarantee that I'm going to sell anything, but I can tell you I will. If I believe in that product and I know that it's good and I would buy it, it will sell. And so I learned over time you know, what not to post and what to post. And brands were extremely good at allowing me to do my thing. 
So it worked well. At, at this point, you're still blogging. You're not on Instagram. How did you know that people were, were you getting building a list? Were you building a database? Did people have to sign up in order to get your blog? Mm-hmm. So I've got it. I've still got a database of, it's about 6,000, 35 to 45 year old Aussie mums, mainly Melbourne based. They signed up to the e-newsletter. So I was putting out one to two newsletters, e-newsletters every week. And you know what? I was doing it via MailChimp. It was very basic, but it really worked. And my open rate was really high. My click-through rate was high. So I just knew that I was on to something because I just, I never got any hold up and I never got feedback that this isn't very good. It was all just very positive from the start. I knew I was onto something that also didn't exist. So I was very big on where's my point of difference? And that's where, you know, small businesses at home that are starting a new brand, ask yourself, and I always ask them too, if I'm coaching anyone, what is it that allows you to stand out from everyone else that's doing exactly the same thing as you? Because look, nine times out of 10, there's going to be a competitor around the corner. What are you doing that's just standing out? Is it going to be how you wrap your product? Is it going to be the customer service? Can it be all of those things? So I really made that under 100 tagline very strong from the start and I never ever I took it very seriously. I, you know, people would try and say, oh, this chair's 110, can you put it in? And I'd be like, no, that goes against my whole purpose and integrity. So, I mean, if you can build yourself on a tag or you can be on something very simple, a few words, and everything feeds into that, it becomes a very strong proposition. Yeah, very powerful. So yours was, say what it was again? Everything under $100. Got it. Done. Immediately. It was on my signature. It was everything I did. So you've got to realise from that point, brands that were, that had product under $100, they started to contact me very simply, very plainly because they knew what they were going to get and the customer or the the reader, the viewer, also knew what they were going to get very simply. Did you ever feel in doing that that you were leaving a huge amount of money on the table and polarising people who wanted stuff over $100? No, I never felt like that. And I also, you'd be amazed at the under $100 brands, how much money they have for campaigns, Tim. Um, You've got to realise I worked with Australia Post, Target, Kmart. I worked a lot with Bunnings. I was the first influencer that's ever done anything with Bunnings. Um, There was L'Oreal. There was lots of um, brands that at first At first you think, oh, maybe this isn't going to work. And then you start talking about concepts and you think the synergies with affordable product and mothers, this is going to work really well, actually. So it was great that I had the ability. And I think the hardest thing for small businesses is they don't necessarily have the creative to be able to say, oh, how can my product work with this particular influencer? I think that's really hard just looking at it that way. It's really good if a small business can go to whoever they like. I say don't, you know, contact them, cold cold call them, cold email, get on Instagram and ask them. But maybe pick a couple that you could gain a relationship with and work ongoing with so that your budget isn't like a, this scattergun approach to, to a lot of different influences and then you kind of, you get disappointed when you, you might not get the results you want. I had a lot of big businesses say to me, Chelsea, we just always want to work with you what's too much and too little? And I'd say, okay, let's do three major campaigns in a year, but it has to be connected to my content. It has to make sense. And I have to love what I'm pushing. 
Otherwise, it's a no-go. So I really, I was strict and I said no a lot, but I actually think that that made me, made the proposition, again, more powerful. Well, it makes you scarce and we we want what we can't have and it leaves you in control. Uh, It means your brand is full of integrity. The minute you promote something over 100 bucks, you're off brand and people smell around. It's like, hang on, she's selling out. (laughs) Yeah, and you know what? I felt because of who I was, I think I felt very safe and I felt felt like the mums that were watching me, I felt very unintimidated um, working with the likes of a Target or a, uh, or even a Maya stock take sale, I always did their Boxing Day sales. But if it came to like a David Jones or a Zimmerman or someone more elitist, I probably wouldn't have been as comfortable with them personally. So I think you've got to work with who you watch, you know, for a small business watching influencers, because I know they do that a lot. Be okay with working with someone that doesn't necessarily have 150,000 followers. I don't think that's important anymore. You've got to look at the small ones that do a great job and they're going to be less money. And we're talking the micro-influencers, like 20 to twenty to 30,000, they sometimes do better than the ones with more. It's really important to let everyone know. What, uh, at what point did you move across to Instagram and stop blogging? I think it was, you know, I never stopped blogging. It was all, you have to have a website there to, that was a very popular part of what I did and it was always allowed that longer format content. So obviously you've got Instagram, I'd, I'd post... I probably after three years, I started Instagram. So I did five really hard years on Insta and then Facebook started to fall away very naturally. But I'd always post different things and different content. That's really important. Like if you've got a Facebook audience and an Instagram audience, I don't generally use the same scheduling app to pump out your content to both. I understand that's a timely thing to do. It's probably not great if you've got someone that sits across both and they just continue to see the same content. So Instagram really took off probably, it was three years in. So it would have been about five years ago. And the visual was so important for me because photography, obviously I could snap things on the go. It made sense for my offering to have something that was fast. People could look and then buy. So obviously at that stage, there was no click to buy within Instagram. It was very plain and simple. People would literally have to go on the website and find it. But that became exciting. That adds to the whole experience. And they would be like, Chelsea, my friends would be texting me saying, please, can you send it to me first before you post it on Instagram? Because it goes, you know, the frenzy. Um, It was exciting. So then I started this conversation and I talked to people about Instagram still about rather than it being a one-way street and you pushing and pushing and pushing your product, it's a really good way is just to ask questions within your captions that says that you actually care about your audience and you care about what they're doing. You care about what they think about your product or tell us your vibe today. I think a lot of people push and then say, nothing worked. So I, I really started this conversation early to get to know who was following me and I targeted things at them. So I would say to them, what do you guys want to see this week? And they'd say, we want maternity. We want more shoes. It'd be crazy things. We want bathers under $50. So I'd be up all night, you know, trying to find bathers under $50. Like I was challenged every day by what my audience said, but I responded to them and I took them seriously. And I think a lot of people have Insta as this side kind of thought. And you know when they do, because it's, it's very generic, 
kind of content. I think it's really it, it's really good if you can target and ask ask questions and respond and and even if they're going to comment, respond to the comments. Yeah, 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 totally. How many don't do that? As I said, I've been shut out of Facebook. My business doesn't live or die by any social media channel. They're certainly helpful to promote each episode. You had a business. I mean, you were blogging, but your business it was an Instagram business. Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever get hacked? Shut down? I never got shut down, Touchwood. I never got shut down. I've got a very good friend that lost her entire account, her entire business and her entire house renovation because it was all leaning on that. Like, that's pretty crazy when you think about it. No, I did get copied once. That's a nice story. That's a nice story. You know why that's a good story? Because I think um, businesses listening, if they see sometimes that there might be a competitor that watches them and does the same as them. I got up one day and my friend texted me and said, and they were Melbourne girls and they were my age and they didn't take the um, they didn't take the business name, but they pretty much took the whole template of the website and literally had th- bargains under a hundred dollars. And you, you imagine me, like me being me. I mean, I don't know you, Tim, but you can tell I'm crazy. Three years in going, they're, they're kidding themselves, right? They're actually, okay, no, that's fine. So I actually got angry and I did send, and I never told my husband because he said, please don't do that. I did send them a, a message on Facebook to say, wow, this website looks crazy the same as mine. You guys have great ideas. Good luck. And I probably shouldn't have done that. But listen, I got legal advice on that and I didn't have a leg to stand on. And the reason was you can copy a template for a website. You can even copy a concept. You can't copy my name. But it was alive and well, three suburbs away from me. And it was at that point that I thought, okay, well, how am I going, what am I going to do? Because this is not ideal. And I thought, well, it it actually drove me harder to work And I put my head down and I just kept swimming and I kept watching them to see whether they were keeping up with the pace and they weren't keeping up with the pace. And eventually it was, you know, probably six to eight weeks later and I noticed the posts were dropping off, dropping off. But some people, unfortunately, just have the audacity to to 100% copy your brand, copy your product. I say just keep going. Just keep going and keep in your lane. There's that great saying, people can copy what we do but not who we are and clearly what your magic was was who you were, the personality that you're putting your ability to find bargains under 100 bucks. I mean, there's a skill in that. It's like, don't put me to the test, Tim, because I will show you. So I, and I think that was, that was an exciting time actually because they actually just spurred me on, on to do more. And it can be, it can be very distracting if you decide to take notice that much of what your competitors are doing. It really can take you off path. And also there, there's room, there's room for, I mean, now after all this time, bargain bloggers started to pop up. Isn't it funny? You'd never think that it'd be a thing, but now it's a full category. It's a full hashtag, hashtags. Um, There's huge events where 100 plus bargain bloggers will go along. But when I first started, that didn't exist. So I think it's good for the industry that it happened. And there's there's more, obviously, product available for, for those mums at home that can't necessarily afford it. Chelsea, can you put your finger on that moment, that day when you thought, this is going to be actually really big. This is really big. It's a couple of those months. Yeah, I tell you, and it wasn't actually that long ago. <laughs> really? um, the Today Show rang me um, on Channel 9 and said, listen, we want to do a bargain segment. 
and it might not sound big to anyone else, but I'd always kind of want it, you know, I'd always, I'd produce TV and I'd never been on it. So it was that moment of I get to be the talent for a minute and I'm, I'm just being honest. But um, I was like, wow, I Heart Bargains could have its own segment. And it actually ran for eight weeks and it got to the point where I just couldn't do the travel to, to Sydney and back in a week when it would take me out for a whole day. Uh, and as you know, as a guest on any of the brekkie shows there's not a huge budget so really I had to look at it from a business perspective and say I I don't know that this is going to work you know long term it was taking me two days I'd have to stay overnight but it was so exciting that someone had seen the opportunity as you know that's so commercial we can commercialize that concept so every week and it was you can imagine Carl Stefanovic going through my under $200 bedroom it was just it was funny content it was really fun but I, I was I was overjoyed that someone else, a TV producer, had seen had seen the love of what I do and decided to put me on. That was that was a pretty big moment. But there was a few there was a few of those when big brands decided to sign off on campaigns that I'd come up with from scratch. That's that's a pretty great thing to have happen as well. No doubt, some big checks coming in. How do you figure out what to charge doing what you're doing? Uh, look, it was a lot of guesswork at the start because I had no one to kind of bounce off. I um, started on sort of $200 posts because I'd think, okay, well, um, I'd have to shoot the content. You know, it was very basic back then, but $200 to kind of start with. And I would have been on probably 10 to 15 to 20,000 followers at that point, but I really was kind of making it up. And then, um, and my prices never got silly. It wasn't like anyone would come back to me and say, that's ludicrous. Like, are you joking? I would always, it was always fair, but I also knew the value of what I did. And by the time I got sort of three years into Insta, let's say, it was at the point where I had proof from a lot of campaigns of how much I was selling. They'd say, this campaign equates to this. Um, So I was able to then put a a media kit together as an influencer and go out and say, listen, these are the sort of numbers that I'll get you. These are the sort of views. These are the sort of clicks, even down to how many followers you're going to get if I promote you. And that that was really powerful. And people loved the fact that I never hid that from them. I was always like, look, if you pay this amount, this is sort of where we're going to get to in terms of eyeballs. And they liked the fact that I was just open and honest about um, about my campaigns. There's a lot of influencers that won't even give their insights over to brands. What you see is what you get. I think that played in my favour because I was never dishonest with my figures. I was like, this is kind of, if you if that suits you, that's the price and move on. And I think this is a really good point too. Not everything I did was paid you know, probably 50% of my content was was sponsored content. And even when it was sponsored, it's important for people to note that those are things that intertwine in my life that I wasn't pushing anything that I didn't really love. I'd pick really funny products. I'd pick, I remember there was a spiralizer, like when it just came out that you could do zucchini spaghetti. Just for the record, absolute (laughs) nonsense. Zucchini spaghetti. Seriously. Anyway, go on. but at the time that it came through and it didn't exist yet and it came I was like that is the most brilliant thing I've ever seen and I actually did a set of videos with my husband so this is where it was oh. I would say to the I'd say to the yeah but I, I actually didn't let him know I'd just roll the camera I, none of my stuff was produced it was as you see which probably made it successful and we sold out of that spiralizer by the way but um you have to have a way to engage the audience that's beyond a product push. And I was always, I loved doing that. I loved creating content that was clever. And I think that that worked in my favour. 
Tell me about that, just uh, because creating content that's clever requires an idea. In small business marketing, advertising, that kind of stuff, it's rare that you see a big idea. You know, I've, I worked in advertising for years and that's what you got paid to do was to generate. Mm. So big brands paid big agencies big money for big ideas. Maybe just your your idea process. Does it something you sit down and scratch your chin and uh, come up with something? Do you? Sp- I'm thinking about how I do it, and then I'm thinking about what I can say to kind of give some tips because it does come naturally to me in terms of the you know if there was a brand and I've got I Heart Bargains and how to plug it in. That works very seamlessly for me. I think there's a number of things you can do. I'm a big mind mapper. I don't know if you've mind mapped before, but yeah, you love it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I've I've never sort of learnt it. It's just something I've always done through my career to kind of ground my career and then move to the next step. How can I do that? I think putting your product in the middle of a page, you know, if you want to do something new or exciting or engaging and understanding, you know, right, all, it's like spokes of a wheel. So you pop the product in the middle, all the spokes of the wheel. What are all the things that you could do and dream big And then maybe some of the ones that you can dream big, how can you bring that back to a community level or a smaller base level where it would make sense? And I often like to play on words, cool cool names. I think everything can come from a name. Um, is, Is there something that you can do weekly whereby you check in with your customers every week and tell them something personal about yourself whereby I know who's behind the brand? I think... Big ideas are great. I think better ideas come from the face of the business. And I know people are petrified. I used to run training for people who would have never done a story on their social media or they've never filmed themselves and even hearing their own voice would freak them out. If you can, if you're a small business, I think the best thing you can do is show your vulnerability on camera. I, I've always said this and and show people how the product works. Hold the product if it upsets you to have a camera in your face. But look, big ideas are great. I think there's so much authenticity in showing who you are, why you're producing this product and why you're really proud of it. What, what's the backstory? That's really, I think that's something for everybody to work towards. If they can introduce themselves to their audience on socials, it's a really big thing. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So much to cover, Chelsea. How big did it get? How, how big did I heart bargains get? Turnover, followers? Um, oh, I've never said turnover. Like I was... You know what? I I got so comfortable with money that never did I look at the price tag of anything, put it that way. I was just, but in saying that, I never got time to spend it. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, it, it was it was a great wage for me. It that, gave that me is so, so much awesome. freedom. Just how, how does that make you feel? You just said you never looked uh, at the price tag for anything. You had enough dough to buy whatever you wanted. I was very comfortable I, I always kept my I Heart Bargains money separate, which some people would say that's psychotic. But no, I wanted to see what I'd built. My husband was fine with that. He said, if you want to keep that there for a rainy day, and it happens now that my rainy day is I moved and I'm not working now and I, I can sit comfortably. But how big did it get? It was, you know, 100,000 plus women. I was doing probably three or four events. I was doing live TV. It was... Yeah, it looked like I was running a huge 
business and I had I had had two staff as well which I always did things kind of small uh, I grew it I grew the the platforms but I kept it fairly neat so I could be highly profitable I didn't have overheads that was the other thing I only got an I ran it from home for six years um, which a lot of small businesses do that was also probably a little bit of a mistake because I didn't have separation uh, and then I got an office and we got a yeah we got a couple of offices we got a stylist suite so look Life was great if you looked at it from the outside. Describe a typical working day. Uh, it'd usually be quite early if I had an event or a, um, a shoot on. I had lots of shoots. I'd have three shoots in a week and that would be going to a client. So makeup call would be like 5.30 or 6 o'clock. I'd come home, quickly do breakfast with the kids, run out the door and I'd be... Um, in saying that, I've already updated all my socials. So I would do about 25 stories a day. Yeah, it was disgusting, really, when you look at how... Like, I was never not I was never not on. Give me an example of a story. I'm going to get my makeup done. Um, here's Maria. Say hi to Maria. Look, you know, that sort of thing. I even sound like a different person, don't <laughs> I? Um, but I'd also show people, like, really cool stuff throughout my day. It, it would... That sorts of content, me getting to somewhere late and then explaining why I was late, it was like a, a verbal or, a, sorry, a visual commentary of my life. You know, I remember I actually went probably a little bit too far and Clementine, my youngest, was having a tanty at the door and I was trying to get all these flowers in for a shoot into home and she was having a tantrum and I actually recorded the tantrum and I had a few people say, whoa, I think you've gone to, you know, that's overstepping the mark, isn't it? And I thought, yeah, probably. You know, she doesn't have a choice that I'm filming her. It's how far, how low do you want to go, Tim? How far do you want to push it? Because the more the more you provide that content, the more demand there is. The more people want to get the nitty gritty, the behind the scenes. So I'm not saying to, you know, that was an influencer life. I'm not saying to small businesses, you know, show us your garage, you know, show us all your junk. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying if you can, if you can pro- provide a little bit of behind the scenes of your day, if you're a florist, for example, you show going to the flower markets in the morning, or if you're, um, you know, if you've got a, a tech business, what's something really cool that you can tell your audience that, that would bring them to bring them to life. So there's ways and means of doing it. You don't have to go that far, but a day in the life was that. And then I'd go to an event there wouldn't be much time for nourishment or exercise or any of that sort of thing. And I'd usually do school pickup in between as well. I tried to be, I don't know why I tried to do that, but I did. So it was very hustle bustle as lots of traveling and um, scheduling and fly by the seat of your pants. And then get the kids fed and to bed and working till what time? It was awful, probably 11. 7 to 11 was, and, and I, I thought that uh, I was a night owl. No, since I've unplugged, I'm not a night owl. I like to do, we like to do things that pull that cortisone level down versus rile it up. Uh, I would sit on Insta and often it was crafting. The worst time for me was five, five till six was a key time for me to push content. And I always did everything live, Tim. So I didn't believe in scheduling apps. I felt like it mucked with my engagement. So I was doing all my posting live for years. I'd literally years I did not have a break. That's how hardcore I was in terms of building the platform. Five till six and then eight till nine. So if you're a retail product, that's really good. If you've got a retail product, that's a really good time to push 
to your audience. So it's like after work time and then it's obviously eight till nine when you've got the kids to bed and people are just doing their scrolling. So I, in those times you'd craft, you'd pick the photo, you'd be filtering. I'd already have someone, the photographer had already done the editing. I'd filter it, caption it. The caption could take forever and then you'd post and then you'd watch. That process I did every night for four years. Chelsea, I'm exhausted. I'm actually exhausted saying it. <laughs> Just tell me, uh, let's get specific. That's a day in the not life that I'm you. not sure I want to live, but, but well done to you and thank you for, you know, taking a hit for the rest of us who don't want to do that. Just tell me, let's talk specifically about Instagram because, again, social media troubles so many small business owners out there. You talked about one of the hardest things is crafting the headline. It's an aspect mm. of storytelling and of... Of, of marketing that absolutely fascinates me. I love writing email headlines and all that kind of stuff and seeing what works and what doesn't. For you, what 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 worked? I mean, we're sort of we're talking clickbait, really, aren't we? Yes and no. So there's two ways that I kind of worked. I think if I wrote a blog post and I did sort of ten pairs of shoes under a hundred, I don't need to say anything more than that, right? It is what it is. Okay, so there's hero content and there's filler content. The hero content you put in the time of day that is the most successful. Most businesses would know when that is. And then there's obviously filler content. And filler content, I feel like everybody needs to find their voice. Everybody needs to be able to talk like we are now within their social media platforms. Because I think what happens is we get onto Instagram or Facebook and we decide to become a robot. And what happens in that time is we lose the engagement. We don't lose it. We don't actually gain that engagement at all. So people will flick past and obviously the photo, the the imagery is exceptionally important. Um, We don't have time to go into all of it, but your imagery to be clear, to be bright, and also to be based on exactly what you're promoting. And when I say that, you know, when I talked about that wheel before, make sure that all your imagery is within that wheel. Don't put a random pic of your dog at the park. I do. I see this a lot when people say, can you check out my small business Instagram page? Sure. I go on. I should see within those top nine squares what you are offering me. It should be very clear. I shouldn't have to go, hang on a minute, what is this about? And then I see a personal photo and something else. Like, treat it seriously. There's a lot of people that grab their personal account because they've got followers they make at their business account, which is fine, but the branding has to change. So in your day with a caption, it would be most beneficial even if you could pre-prepare some that are actually in your own tone of voice. You don't have to be a robot and I don't think anyone expects to see ad copy where it could be a really enlightening, fun kind of caption. For example, I did, and you can all steal it now because I did it, I asked people what they have to drink when it's not coffee. I mean, it's not rocket science. I had something like, it was over a thousand comments. It was like a thousand and twelve. Everyone wanted to tell me about what they had when it wasn't coffee. So it was soy chais and Coke and beer and wine. And Anyway, it was one of these posts that was filler content, but it was a clever caption. It engaged and it nearly, try and think about the questions that you can't not answer. You go, it's really quick. I can do that. If you can get a, a group of those. To that end, what, what's the end point for that question for your business? Because there's business owners listening, the chiropractors listening, the accountants listening. They go, what's the point of me for my business asking that question? Sure. Well, that's 
yeah, let, let's hang on a second though. So let's give it some context. So I was doing a 10.30 in the morning post. I'll give you some other examples. A 10.30 in the morning post, I was holding a cup of tea and I would have been probably promoting the dress I was wearing. So I asked that question. It relates to the photo, but it's generalised enough that everyone can have input. So I would say to you, let's let's take a really tough one. Let's take an, I'm on the fly here too, you're putting me on the spot, but let's take an accountant because that's quite hard. An accountant could, and I mean, it might not be around tax time, but an accountant could say something about what time of day perhaps do you choose to, or what are your most productive hours in the day? I'm just throwing it out there. If you had your ideal day, what time would you work and what time would you play? Think about the things that your audience would be doing. We all rest, sleep, play, feed ourselves, etc. It's about humanising your content so that it's still relatable to the particular photo and it's not coming too far off brand, but recognising that we're all human and we're all in our days doing our thing. So make it time specific if you wanted to. You could, you know, you could say, what do you do when you're not working? So it's still related to work, but it's, is that, does that make sense? Well, yes, it does. And the big lesson there is it's about humanising the business because too many businesses are push, push, yes. push, buy from me. I could sit here for half an hour and rattle off all those sort of examples, but it's about humanising and finding your tone of voice. And also I would say to them, look at some businesses that they really, really love in terms of their, their tone a voice and emulate that. You don't have to copy it and it's hard it's actually hard to copy full captions, but emulate their style. Things are absolutely rocking for iHeart Bargains. You've built an empire, you've built a very strong personal brand. You don't look at the price tag on anything you buy. What was that one thing then that triggered you to decide to close a business that's booming? I don't think, I would love to say it was one golden light bulb moment, but of course that's not how life works. I think the one thing that tipped me into starting to think about the end was some coaching that I got, as I said before, and I was sat to ask why. I was sat to ask what what my purpose was and what my values were. And the value, I wish I could take people through this, but the values is really incredible. Um, it's values elicitation work. So you, you, you've got, let's say you've got 150 values in front of you and you pick your top ones. And my top value turned out to be authenticity. And the problem with that was, well, the, the, I suppose the, the storm that started to brew was that I was looking at my work and it was no longer authentic to me. Uh, so that started that the questioning started and I reckon it took uh, would have taken about eight or nine months to actually you know make the decision and and get it done it it took that long to wind up clients and and for me to personally that was a big thing thinking I'm just going to stop all of this this is going to stop and I literally jumped off the treadmill there was no lead up it was like I knew it was going to happen it's happening in four weeks and I went from doing a hell of a lot to nothing, which was a shock to my system, to be honest. For so many of us, what we do in business defines, to a large extent, who we are as human beings. And I would think, just speaking to you for the last almost hour, that that was you. You were defined by iHeart Bargains. Yeah, you had a family. Yeah, you had a hubby. But they were all suffering as a result of you building this empire. Yeah. So if you talk to my psychologist, she'd say my identity was 100% wrapped up in what was iHeart Bargains. So for me to emotionally, physically, however you want to look at it, let it go, is extremely difficult. 
I think what started to happen though was my body wasn't allowing me to do the pace anymore. I sound like I'm 80, but it did happen where I was chronic fatigue type symptoms and I was not a happy person. I was not enjoying my everyday. And so it took little bits of coaching, little bits of psychology, little bits of tapping. I wouldn't say that it was one thing that led me on this. You know, I can't say go and see this person. He'll tell you what for and you'll quit your business. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's little bits of everything, but I, I had to stop and I had to feel what was going on in my body. And I did, when I sat still for long enough, I was that churned up that um, I no longer kind of gravitated to that feeling of being racing or on the treadmill. So I started to do things that were softer, gentler, and that really started me on the path to saying, is this still the right thing for me? And I think if you can slow down even a tiny bit, and I know people will be eye-rolling at home, but if you can slow down ever so much or even that 10 minutes a day to come back inward instead of outward to make your decisions, that will help you. That will help you maybe find a little bit of balance. And the other thing that I did want to say was um, choice. We all have choice. So a workaholic and adrenaline junkie, which I, I was or am and a recovering one, it's all about the language. So we all say, I'm so busy, I'm mental, I'm crazy. It's like, the, you know, we have this busy competition, you're right? I, someone said to me once, try to have a moment where you change the language of I have to and I should to I choose. Okay, so what happens in that moment? You say, I choose to work late instead of going to sleep. I choose to work when I could be exercising. Can you see the difference then? I ha- you, you, become, you actually become more responsible for your own life and your own career and your own work versus I'm a slave to this and you put your arms up and it's, it's all over and it's too hard and I'm overwhelmed. All of that language just feeds, it feeds the beast. So I think saying I choose, I actually choose to work 10 hour days. Because you do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In fact, you know, the way, talking of language, self-language, self-talk, I mean, the way we talk to ourselves, you know, you wouldn't talk to your worst enemy sometimes the way you talk to ourselves. It's quite incredible, isn't it? Chelsea, um, I listened to another interview you did uh, with a mutual friend of ours, Russell Howcroft, and he he ran you through the brand value index, which I think was created by Saatchi and Saatchi or one of the big advertising agencies. And I think I got a sense that you were sitting in that interview going, oh, my God, um, (laughs) the value of this brand. And I heart I heart bargains. It's a significantly it's it's a, it's a a brand that's worth a lot of money that people would pay a lot for. Yet you've just closed it. You've shut it down. Did it not mm. occur to you at any point that maybe it's something you could sell? Why you're shaking your head? Why? It's not that it didn't occur to me. I didn't want it going. It was so. Um it was so close to who I was that I felt like I didn't want it going off into the ethos without me. That's as plain and simple as it is. I didn't want to, I could, there were people that, there were smaller businesses that did ask me like, would I like to sell my actual, my Instagram following? 
um, which is just under 100K now. And I'm sitting on that. I haven't done anything with it. It's very weird feeling of mine that I have to get over. You don't post anything? You don't comment? Not at the moment, Tim, no. I, I've told people where I am and what I'm doing and that I'm doing much better than I was in that video because a lot of people were very concerned, I think, about my well-being. And I was like, no, 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 actually, this is a very good thing to happen, the breakdown and then the building up. And now I get to do the build-up, which is a really exciting stage. So, yeah, I don't... I don't know. I, I think... I've thought about it and then I think, but it's not that anymore. It's not I heart, I was I heart and that, that part of me has closed and, and that chapter's closed. And, yeah, sure, all, really what you're buying is a database. What do you I say, mean, Chelsea, to business owners listening who are doing okay but they're exhausted? They could keep building this little empire that, you know, may set them up forever but, you know, other parts of their life are suffering. Bit of a leading question. I think I know the answer, what, but what do you tell them? It depends if they love it. Because if you had have asked me this five years ago, if you had have asked me this question... This question they do. If they don't, then the, the question's obvious. Get out. Yeah. Well, it is, sure. But I think a lot of people stay in something because they're making good money, etc. And And, you know, because, I don't know, someone told them when they were younger that that's what they should... That's what they're born for. Like, really look into yourself and know that you're happy doing it. If you're happy doing it, try and find... You've got to try and find the happiness within your days. And I know that sounds corny and cliche, like I've work, walked out of a spa retreat, but honestly, you you need those moments, otherwise you crash and otherwise the relationships around you will burn to the ground, quite literally. You have to have the moments in your day where you come back to being present and being conscious in what you're doing as a whole and as a person and as a career. So I would just say, take moments in time that are just yours as the lasting advice. You've moved to the northern coasts of New South Wales with your family and your hubby. How's life these days? You look pretty well. Well, it's real. Look, so you want a day in the life, put it up next to the day in my life this morning, an hour of Pilates. I've been to the beach, I've had a swim and I've had a nice nutritious lunch. So I think the differences, and like I am that walking cliche. I'm the one that did the sea change and now I've got crystals all around me and I do my breath work every day, you know. Um, I've, I've come a long way. I still have a long way to go in not having a project. I really struggle with that, Tim. I find myself in rooms of people, creatives, and I can't help but try and like want to work for them or, you know, start a business or start a brand. It's just, it's naturally, it's in me. It's innate, that workaholic kind of gene. Um, what I've got to do is learn to balance it. And it's also got to be right this time. So I'm doing a lot of writing. Um, that's another thing that you can do if you've ever got time. I do 30 minutes of free consciousness writing, I suppose, stream of consciousness writing, and lots of stuff comes out of that. And I'm just getting to know, it sounds awful, but I'm getting to know my kids really well and what they love and I've always kind of outsourced that role. So it's really come back, coming back into family, as cliche as that is, and just really enjoying my days. I will, I'll pump up and do something else. I'm just not sure what that is yet. Are you okay if that something else isn't as big or nearly as big as I Heart Bargains? I still have a very big, I think, ego attachment to an audience. Um, we don't have time to go into my psychological analysis, but um, I've all, since I've been quite young, I've loved this idea of um, having a community that I can talk to and help 
always wanted to kind of we haven't talked about that side but there's a there's a large part of I Heart Bargains that was actually all heart and it was uh, a lot of helping and a lot of give back and I was very big on that and I'm still that that kind of strain still comes up for me a lot. It sounds to me like you kind of like that. Always look at singers you know I'm a child of the 80s and it was there's so many one hit wonders right it is like (laughs) how do you live with that like mate you just made I know I think about that but I feel like it's it's getting me to where I need to go because I think I think the, my meltdown and my my breakdown will actually be part of this next story, whether that be a book or whether that be a podcast or whether you know I'm I'm really liking the fact that I can be guests on podcasts now because it's just I'm learning to find my new voice. I'm learning to find Chelsea versus I Heart Bargains, and that's really important at this stage. I I know that something is in store, but I know that probably the universe isn't ready yet. I'm going a bit woo-woo on you, Tim, but I I just know that I need to kind of take my time, you know, be with my family and then, you know, come back fresh. I mean, how fortunate am I to be able to do that? Well, I worked in a non-profit organisation in Melbourne for a couple of years that helped young people at risk. It was called Reach and it was started by a a late but a very well-known AFL footballer, Jim Steins. Steins. And uh, he used to say to me, he said, Tim, we'd run these courses at schools and things and he says, look, he said, look how many kids are being dropped off in Mercedes and BMWs. Because they thought Reach was for homeless kids. It wasn't at all. It was for kids at risk. And the risk was that mum and dad were never at home. And they're, they're CEOs and making big money elsewhere and forget about the kids. And um, so I don't think it's too late. In fact, I know it's not too late. Your kids are young enough to still benefit from you being at home. And I think it's awesome what you've done. Well done for creating something so special and, and having the guts to, to end it. Uh, at the top of its game and I wish you all the best for the future and please come on next time you've decided to do whatever it is you're going to do. Next time I I want to plug something, I'm going to come straight to you, Tim. Wow. What an amazing human being and a story very well told. You'll find a link to Chelsea's 15-minute closing the business video that we uh, talked about at the top of that interview over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 515. And like I said up front, if that chat triggered anything within you, then please speak to a friend or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Now, here's what grabbed my attention from talking with Chelsea. Attention grabber number one. I love Chelsea's brutal honesty. As she said, more business owners should show their vulnerable side and be more authentic because after all, people buy from people. Attention grabber number two. I love the idea of having a short tagline that very quickly explains what it is you do. So like Chelsea's was, and I quote, everything under $100. (laughs) pretty self-explanatory, but I think this is especially important if your business name is not self-explanatory. Having that short descriptive tagline is smart for business. And attention grabber number three, I'm reminded talking to Chelsea of the power of a simple blog. Sounds very old school. In fact, that's what the internet was built on originally. It was blogs. But that's how iHeartBargain started. And there's so much upside to blogging. It adds great content to your website. Google loves them. And writing a helpful blog post means you connect with and add value to your precious customers' lives. So if you haven't got one, I encourage you to get one and blog regularly. Well, that's what grabbed my attention. Whatever grabbed yours, please head over to smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 515 and leave me a comment. 
It's Timbo's Monster Prize Draw. Oh, I love this time of the episode. It's time to reward another motivated listener for not only listening to this podcast, but actually taking some serious marketing action and implementing an idea that they've heard on the show. And today's winner is Rebecca War from The Mummery, which sells breastfeeding bundles and keepsakes. Well, that's a niche. Rebecca says, hey, Tim, congratulations on your 500th episode. Thanks, Beck. When listening to it yesterday, there was a question from someone who was changing their brand and you suggested to print out all the touch points to make sure your branding is consistent across all platforms. Yeah, it's like a must do. Not even if you're rebranding, just do it every year to make sure that everything's consistent. Beck says, I'm right in the middle of changing my business name and branding, so I have taken this advice to heart and done this today. Having the printouts and my packaging, I can easily see where I need Need to do some work to be brand consistent. Thank you for this tip. Well, well done, Beck. Um, the power of that is if your brand is consistent, then you build trust and familiarity. If your brand is inconsistent, it kind of puts an element of doubt in your prospect's mind and they're like, well, what's going on here? Uh, so, Beck, uh, you are from the mummery dot com was it dot com or dot au i can't remember but just look up the mummery i will put a link in the show notes for that wonderful little bit of implementation beck you've won a full range of liars non-alcoholic spirits valued at 500 bucks 75 dollars torsion bar voucher a bonjoro license sendal and tradies vouchers mr lee's noodles promotion on this show and a backlink in the show notes you gotta love that everyone else just send me an email about one idea you've implemented from listening to this show and how it's impacted on your business. Tim at timreid.com.au. Well, well indeed. That almost wraps up this show. Feel free to leave me your feedback over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 515, where you can also grab a copy of my book, The Boomerang Effect. I'll sign it if you like, and that will devalue it back to, I don't know, about five bucks. <laughs> if you're picking up what I'm putting down, then you'll find over 510 more episodes on the Podcast One Australia app. Next time round, you and I are going to catch up with 17-year-old entrepreneur that, like, he hasn't been an entrepreneur for 17 years. He is 17 years old, and he's the creator of Seagull Milk Sunscreen. Josh Appitz is his name. It's a great story. Uh, if you're getting value from listening, please let other business owners know about the Small Business Big Marketing Podcast, which was presented, is, and continue to be presented by me, Timbo Reed. It's elegantly put together by the vivacious team at Podcast One Australia. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. Now get out there and take action. Listener.